Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that uh, is the sounds of blackness. Hold on. You know, change is coming. Hold on. Don't worry about a thing. And that's so much more easy to a concept to envision when, you know, you got somebody there holding on with you. And we're going to be hearing about a wonderful program uh, veterans Healing Veterans, uh, and uh, I think it's housed in the Veterans Transition Center in uh, Fort Ord, uh, the former military base in Marina, Monterey County, California. And for our first hour, we're going to be speaking to veterans about their return to civilian life, some of whom made detours uh, into the California Corrections facilities. And we are so excited to have with us presently, we have Jenny, We've got Craig, we've got Marcus, we've got Randall, we have Wendy, and uh, we're going to all just sort of be talking. And I want to thank Marcus so much for curating this wonderful discussion. So, um, I don't have last names right in front of me, sorry, y'all. So when you introduce yourself, you have to give me your whole name. So, um, so I was thinking um, I had invited um, Marcus to co-host with me, and everyone has sort of how we're going to do this. We're going to go around and introduce ourselves, and then we're going to go back and uh, talk in more detail with Jenny and Wendy about the programs that they facilitate. And uh, and then we'll come back and spend the most of the time with the men. Uh, we don't have any women veterans on the show today, but we're going to remedy that by having a, a take two on this. <laughs> So we're not saying that there are no women veterans. That's not what we're saying at all. Um, we're just saying we don't have any right now on the air, uh, unless Wendy's a veteran and then that works. Wendy, are you a veteran? I'm not. No, I'm, okay. I, I'm not. Okay. All right. No worries. But we do have women on the air, so that works. So, um, uh, so Marcus, why don't we start with you, and then you can um, maybe call on um, some of you know, your your friends and colleagues that are joining us in the studio today. Uh, sure. Um, uh, hello, everyone. My name is Marcus Blevins. Um, yeah, I just turned uh, 66 this past October 30th. I served in the U.S. Army as a helicopter mechanic, and my term of enlistment extended from 
April 22nd, 1975 to April 21st, 1978. Um, in 1994, I was sentenced as a repeat offender under three law to a term of 40 years to life. Um, I had previously served two separate terms of imprisonment. All of uh, the cases were for residential burglary. Um, then um, what I'd like uh, to say is that um, the genesis of this <laughs> this uh, crime spree or, or my uh, demise as far as the um, penal system is involved, as uh, I started smoking crack cocaine in 1983, and I started committing crimes to support that habit. And as a result, I was unable to maintain a job with uh, Caltrans, who I was working for as a as a um, highway maintenance worker, and then later with Continental Airlines, where I was working as an aircraft mechanic. Um, all of this was because I too preoccupied with, you know, having to um, try and acquire something to continue my my uh, my my drug habit. Um, so, nevertheless, I was dysfunctional and I wasn't able to really function in society. But when I got locked up in 1994, I quit using drugs, and. Uh, uh, from that period all the way from until nineteen or until twenty thirteen um, I hadn't used I hadn't thought about using uh but then I wasn't even addressing the reason why I was using it in the first place and um so in the latter part of my incarceration, I started addressing that um and that began when i started attending um what is called the Malati Islamic Group of Folsom Prison. Uh, it was at Folsom Prison um, that I met a guy whose name was uh, um, um, Ken, uh, but we called him Jamal. And he uh, wanted to start this group. I had known about Malati Islam. It's a 12-step uh, program for the treatment of addiction. It's an Islamic based program um i'm also a muslim and so this was uh, a neat fit for me and i had some idea of the malati islami program um but until that time i had not really started trying to address the issue of why uh, i was uh, doing what i was doing and uh from that period on until today um i'm i've been in recovery um <clears throat> When I left Folsom in 2016 to go to the Prison University Project at San Quentin State Prison, um, I uh, also joined the veterans uh, military veterans group of uh, San Quentin State Prison, and it was there that I got an idea of the uh, Veterans Transition Center of Monterey County. Um, so in in 2017, um, they passed the um, they passed the law, uh, uh, Proposition 57, that allowed uh, uh, nonviolent offenders, lifer offenders, an opportunity to go before the uh, parole board um, for consideration on parole. 
and I was in that process, and uh, I, I, uh, it was through that process that I got released. Prior to being released, though, um, uh, Mr. Ron Self, who started the Veterans Healing Veterans Program at San Quentin in 2012, I believe, came to visit the veterans group and was talking about the Veterans Healing Veterans Program at the Veterans Transition Center in Monterey County. So once I learned that that there was a program, a, a transition program for veterans, I uh, I applied through uh, the program and was accepted. And once I got released, um, that's where I went. The parole board directed that I should that I would go to the Veterans Transition Center of Monterey County at Fort Ord, and that I was to uh, do my transition there. <clears throat> so I spent uh, approximately nine months at the Veterans Transition Center, and uh, during that time, um, uh, yeah, I received... Excuse me. Uh, excuse me. Don't tell us yes. everything in one, one fell swoop. I just wanted you to just introduce yourself, and then we'll we'll come oh. back to how you learned about how you found your way to the Veterans Transition Center and Veterans Healing Veterans, if oh, you don't mind. Okay. I'm, I don't, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm no, no. the mic here. If, 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 if you don't mind. No, no, no. It's okay. You're answering all the questions, <laughs> but at one time. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so who would you I'll, like, I'll, who would you I'll, like I'll, to introduce? Who would you like to go I'll, next? I'll, I'll pass the mic to um, Craig Farrell. Mr. Farrell. Good morning. Thank you for having us on your podcast, Wanda. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I, I, came to, I came to California in 73. I was stationed at Fort Ord, and I discharged in 73 and went back to Maryland and had a rough spatch in my life. I received an honorable discharge, but I didn't feel very honorable at the time. Uh, lost my wife went in a downward spiral. I didn't know about the grief cycle, so I started taking my grief through the bottle and started drinking and became an alcoholic. In 1978, I came back to California and uh, committed a murder and met the eight of the family members of my victim, George Michaud, and got involved in the Victim Offender Reconciliation Group. then I got sent to uh, Soledad, Central and South, where I met Ron Sell and went to the Veterans Healing Veterans Program. It was a, it was a one-year program. We did narrative therapy. I learned to express myself, to deal with my grief, my PTSD, my short, my short character flaws and shortcomings, and I've been very helpful since I paroled. Like like Marcus, I was designated by the board to come to VTC, which has been very helpful to me. Now I'll introduce you, I'll introduce you to Randall. Oh, before before you do that, uh, Craig, um, you uh, you skipped a few things uh, about your your going to school you know, Coastline Community College and how that led you to, um, you know, your paralegal work, which 
Yeah, so talk about that, too, before you introduce. Um, yeah. I, I found myself, <clears throat> I'm a readaholic by nature. I love to read. And I, I found myself given an opportunity to go to the college program, and I got my college degree from Coastline. I also uh, became uh, a paralegal through Glastone School of Law, in which I helped uh, my fellow incarcerated peers navigate the legal system. So many of them did not have a literacy level that they could even read a letter from the court. So we, I got a job working in the law library, and my job was to be a paralegal to help my fellow lifers and non-lifers. And I started helping guys prepare themselves for the board and prepare themselves for legal obstacle that was going to be coming their way. I was successful in helping 143 lifers uh, have successful outcomes at the board hearing, many of which have been gracious enough to invite me to their house uh, and for dinner to celebrate their release. And so um, uh, Randall's one of the ones I helped recently, and I'll let Randall speak more about that. Yeah, um, and and um, I don't know if you mentioned it, but um, you were released after 43 years of being incarcerated? Yes, I'm a consumer of the justice system for 43 years. Uh, at some point in, along the way, I, I, I decided instead of serving time for my crime, I served the Lord with my time. And serving the Lord meant serving other people, not serving myself, not getting caught up in my own little uh world but to expand past my own uh, foundation and reach out to other people has been very helpful. Uh, I took a class called Transmediality with Dr. John Brown Child, who's a sociologist uh, professor at UCSC, and which he helped us learn to, to navigate our world with different people, different um, beliefs and and that helped me to have a broader open mind to helping other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you mentioned that um, during the time you've been at the uh, Veterans Transition Center and uh, participating in the Veterans Healing Veterans, that you've achieved some goals. Do you want to share what those are? Yeah, I got my I got my veteran pension. Uh, Friday, I'm. I'm going after my driver's license. It may not sound like a big obstacle for some people, but not, not having a driver's license is a pretty big obstacle I'm finding. Uh, I've got, again, my health care met. I, I battle Parkinson's disease, and the, the VTC has been very helpful in getting me uh, the medical treatment that I needed. Uh, I've, I've seen specialists at Palo Alto and here at Marina VA. Uh, I've been been able to reunite with my family, uh, and I've been, as Alex, my case manager, told me, I've learned how to advocate for myself, which has been a real big help, because sometimes we forget to advocate for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, thank you so much um, for sharing, and we'll definitely come back um, so you can share more. Mm-hmm. Um so were you were you tagging Randall? Yes, Randall. <laughs> Randall Williams. Uh, all right. Um, my name is Randall Williams. Good morning, you all. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on your fine show, Wanda. I really appreciate being here. 
Um, uh, you know, I just want to say, uh, um, uh, first of all, I'd I like to include, uh, you know, your introduction, Hold On, Change is Coming. Um, mm-hmm. That is a very uh, poignant and very um, true, true fact because uh, I guess I'm the epitome of that. Um, I was I was sentenced to uh, three consecutive life sentences. Committed a murder in 1980. Uh, initially, uh, I never considered dying in prison, but the reality was that it was impossible for a man to do three consecutive life sentences. Um, I did 34 years, which uh, equaled one life sentence. So um, the change for me uh, came as I tried to, uh, you know, change my behavior and and the person that I had been my entire life and without any kind of knowledge about... um, what was going on in the background or for me, um, I firmly believe in God. Well, I want to call him Jehovah. Um, but, um, the change came when they changed the law, which I committed my crime when I was 20 years old and, uh, juvenile was 17 years of age. And then, but they raised the, um, age limit. At that time, they raised it to 23. And so what that did for me was it took my three consecutive life sentences and merged them into one. And and so I had to spend, I had to do the time for the one life sentence. Um, I was, uh, I know I'm going backwards here, but I enlisted into the Army when I was, 17 years old, I spent uh, a little over a year um, in the military. So I never considered myself as being a veteran, um, even though I had an honorable discharge. Um, When I met uh, Ron Self in 2018, he uh, he had veterans healing veterans. And... um, he had a course that he brought to Solidarity uh, South, and I I signed up for that course. And, uh, I took it, not really understanding or knowing what what it entailed. Just with him saying that, "Hey man, you raised your hand for this country. Um, that's good enough for me. You know, um, you are a veteran." And it and it resonated because for the first time in my life, someone said yes. They they said that I was a veteran, even though I didn't believe it. But he was right. I did raise my hand, and at that time, I was willing to go out and kill or possibly die for this country. So I took that course, the Veterans Healing Veterans, and I started. Um, this was in the in the middle of my my um, rehabilitation, where I had you know gone to college and 
started taking classes and really, you know, being serious about me uh, changing who I was, transforming. And this particular class, this Veterans Healing Veterans, it had prompts like, write a letter to your dad, you know, or your or your or your the first pain that you your your first pain that you really experienced. And I read I wrote these prompts, and I still have them. As I wrote these prompts, uh, it took multiple rewrites in order for me to get to what I really wanted. And I just dug into myself and continued to dig. And I found out things about me during my writing process that I didn't really even know. And along the way, it was a very emotional journey. And even right now today, if I break out one of those, either one of them, if I break it out and read it, I weep because it's so much um, it's so much of who I am or where I came from and it's just like you know this is the bare it's all about me it's the raw me and um, so the veterans healing veterans they guided me to veterans the veterans transition center and when I got there um, it was a really, you know, my first taste of freedom in 34 years. Uh, I, I, I didn't say that prior to me being arrested for this for this murder in 1980. I had never spent one hour behind anyone's bars. I had never been incarcerated or spent any time um, until I did the 34 years. When I got to the Veterans Transition Center, I was so in, I was so welcomed, so embraced. It was like, and they really cared, and they still care, even after I've gone through the process of the of of, of the whole um, course or, or or transition. They're still helping me, uh, and it's just like they're. They're there to to assist veterans, and and it's, it, it it made me feel like part of the community. Um, you know, like uh, like Craig Farrell said, um, uh, they I, I got my driver's license, my social security, my my birth certificate. I got um, uh, just a wealth of information on how to you know, use uh, computers and just being introduced back into the society and, and into a society that I didn't have an idea about. But they made it possible for me to, to feel normal. Um, and it's just a wonderful program. I would um, I would say that I would be very, I would not be as far along as I am had I not gone there. And I wish that there were more programs like this because it it really uh, it really helped me um, to to land on my feet. Um, I'm sure that you know I've left out quite a bit, but um, I just wanted to um, touch upon just a couple of things that 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 seem to be very um, 
you know, important to me. And uh, But I do also want to mention about Craig Farrell. Uh, he, uh, he, he, I don't think he mentioned the fact that he uh, he was denied. Per, he was found suitable four times before they finally released him. And um, But along the way, he helped a lot of people, and me especially, because I didn't have a clue as to what I was supposed to talk about when I went to the board. And he took a hour and a half every day out of his own time to help me, um, to break down, you know, my transcripts and to have the conversation with these commissioners that needed to be had. And one of the things that he kept telling me was that, you know, um, the truth will set you free. He said, just tell the truth. You've already done the time. Just put it out there. And and that's what I did. I told the truth about everything, and um, that's who I am today. I want to tell the truth about everything that I have to say about anything. And um, so uh, I guess that's my introduction. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I want, definitely want to, uh, I don't know if you want to say it now or later, but I believe you have a business. And if you have a website, you can give that to people. Um, you know, you're, you're doing a whole lot of things. <laughs> yes, well, um, well, the, the business is a fledgling right now. It hadn't the wings. And it, it, uh, so, but yes, the name of the the name of the business is uh, uh, Tie Gear Thirty Four. And as I mentioned earlier, the Thirty Four. Uh, it stands for my, you know, my 34 years of incarceration. But um, Tiger is a clothing brand, um, but it's a clothing uh, line that I hope to build into a brand. Um, it was just, you know, like I had failed in so many things, uh, you know, and things that I really felt worst about. My biggest failure was that I was unable to raise my children. And um, I I just had to I have to succeed at this because uh, I've included them all, including my grandchildren. They all have a percentage. Um, and so this that's something that I really want to put my heart into. Uh, it's just not. Uh, but I appreciate the uh, you know the fact that uh, that I can that I can talk about that on your program. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just me trying to put all the pieces together. But the name of the of the of the uh business is called Tag Gear Thirty Four. Uh it's on Instagram, it's on uh Facebook if you look it up. T I G E A R thirty four. Um, so but thank you. Thank you, thank you oh, very no. much. No worries. Um I'm glad you were able to also mention your family um, in talking about Thai gear because you hadn't um, in your introduction. So that's excellent. We'll come back around. So now, um, Jenny, uh, Jenny, why don't you tell us about yourself and about the Veterans Healing Veterans um, uh, program, and then you can tag Wendy uh, Phillips who's going to talk about the Veterans Transition Center, and then we'll come back around again with the men. Awesome. Good morning, everyone, and Wanda, thank you again for having me. 
Um, a little short bio about myself. Um, I was born and raised here in Carmel, California, and I am an only child. Uh, my mom raised me, and my father passed away when I was 14. I kind of was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a career, and I went to school and got my associates in science, and I decided that when I had my son at 25, I needed some sort of a career. So I got into the medical field, and I became um, a radiologist um, technologist aide. And after about six years of that, I decided that I wasn't really feeling it, and I was looking for more of a purposeful career choice. And my father was a veteran. He served in the Vietnam War. And I was offered a job at the Veterans Transition Center through my one of my best friends named Laura, who is also a veteran. And I started my work there on the VTC side, working with the homeless population of veterans. And I loved it, but I was really intrigued by veterans healing veterans. And so I was asked by Ron Self to come over and become their operations manager. And I didn't really know what I was getting myself completely into. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, as Marcus said, Veterans Healing Veterans was found in San Quentin Prison by Ron Self back in 2012. And the program was inspired to help veterans who had been through military combat and needed kind of a mutual understanding of one another, military and incarceration. So Ron started a peer-to-peer -peer support group that involved narrative therapy that went inside these prisons to speak to the men about connecting the dots between childhood trauma, military trauma, and then eventually coming to why they became incarcerated. Um, Randall touched a little bit about the writing prompts um, that is part of Veterans Healing Veterans, and those include seven different writing prompts, all different. Um, I actually myself did my first one two weeks ago, and as Randall said, I mean, it moved me in so many ways to put my pen to paper and write about something that I had been holding in since I was a child. Um, I absolutely love what I do. I'm dedicated daily to um, going inside the prisons and running these groups and finding men that are becoming found suitable to come out of prison to actually our LTOR program. And that's kind of where VTC comes into play. Um, LTOR was recently founded back in July of 2020, so we're still a new program, but we do have, we've had a lot of men come through, but we do have a zero recidivism rate, which we really pride ourselves on, and our case managers in our LTOR program are absolutely phenomenal and help all of our guys that get out with you know, like all the men said, their driver's license, getting them compensation benefits, anything they need, they are helped with. And so that is kind of the basis mm -hmm. of what we do. 
and I'll pass it to Wendy to give a little insight of the VTP side. Okay. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you, Wanda, for having me on your program. This is such an important mission, and it's really a, a, a wonderful program that, that you know, I, we would love to spread the word about and, and have um, people understand all how intricate and how complicated and yet how um, you know, streamlined that these programs are and how much they can help. Um, so I, I, again, my name is Wendy Phillips. I am the communications director for the Veterans Transition Center. Uh, the Veterans Transition Center is a, it's a homeless veteran program that uh, is seeking to reach functional zero, meaning no veteran is forced to be homeless any longer. And they, uh, they do this by conducting outreach and providing food, clothing, shelter, transportation, employment, case management, and support services to every veteran in crisis. So what I do, actually, uh, both Randall and Marcus are uh, two of, they, they actually are employed by me uh, as drivers. And so as they, they are paid to transport other veterans to all of these appointments that they are telling you about, uh, you know, to go get their social security card, to get their driver's license, um, you know, to work, to, to, to interviews, things like that that are all, you know, offered to help them get back on their feet and to uh, be able to reintegrate back into the workforce and society. Uh, one of the other programs that we offer uh, that I also am very involved in is um, job development. So we have multiple programs that um, help our veterans to obtain the job skills and a lot, most, a lot of the time um, paid on the job training, internships with companies that want to hire them as soon as they have um, you know, completed their education and, or their certificate, something like, you know, whichever program they happen to be in. We actually work with Hartnell College, we, uh, and we have a grant from Metallica, the band, uh, they mm -hmm. have uh, generously given a grant to Hartnell College in order to put together a program to help veterans to uh, learn to be diesel mechanics. And so there's on-the-job training, there's you know hands-on skills skills training with equipment and uh, you know wonderful instructors out at Hartnell. And then we also work with the Shippers and Growers Association to place them into paid internships when they have completed their, their course. Uh, we also have one uh, program that focuses on, uh, on uh, facilities management, and we work with California community colleges to um, help to certify our veterans and our, you know, our residents and then other veterans in the community uh, in facilities management. And then we work with the IFMA Foundation, which is the International Facilities Management Association, to place them in paid internships. So there are a lot of wonderful programs that are available to, you know, help give our, our veterans a boost as they come out of, you know, either incarceration or, or homelessness. Um, let's see, we offer housing solutions. Uh, we have five different types of housing. So uh, we have up to 60 days of emergency residential housing. Uh, that's all, then we also have a service-intensive housing program, clinical program, 
uh, bridge transitional housing and then permanent supportive housing for when they're ready to actually, when they already have reintegrated back into the workforce. And are, um, we offer case management to help them uh, to meet their unique needs and provide custom support for each individual. Um, like I said, job development. We also have a food pantry on the premises, so no, no, no homeless veterans will go hungry. And then we also recently implemented a new um, educational, well, a job training program. Uh, we have partnered with the Monterey Regional Waste Management District to open the Last Chance Mercantile. And the Last Chance Mercantile uh, is, it offers an extensive inventory of uh, one-of-a-kind items, ranging from books to boats, scrap lumber, furniture, and so we have our veteran residents um, at working retail, as retail employees, and my drivers, Marcus and Randall, um, actually transport people, you know, our veterans over to the Last Chance Mercantile so that they can earn money and, um, you know, so that they can reintegrate into society successfully. So we offer a lot of wonderful programs at the Veterans Transition Center. And uh, since we opened our doors in 1998, the VTC has assisted more than 16,000 veterans. It's, it's a wonderful program. Thank you for helping us to spread the word. 16,000. That's amazing. Wow. It is. So, um, so how do people find out, like, what's your website? What's the address of the uh, Last Chance Mercantile uh, store, you know, and and I know it's a nonprofit, so people can make those year-end contributions that are tax deductible. So, give us all those those websites, phone numbers, addresses, so people can support this wonderful organization. Sure, thank you. Yeah, the um, the Veterans Transition Center is uh, their website is www VTC, as in Veterans Transition Center, so VTCMonterey.org. The Veterans Transition Center is also located, um, actually you already mentioned this, Wanda, on the old Ford Org, and it's in Martinez Hall in Marina, uh, right off of Imogen Parkway. And uh, it is a California public benefit organization under IRS 501c3. So, yes, it, there's, um, any donations are entirely tax deductible. Um, if you go to our website, there's actually a button that you can put that will, uh, you know, where you can donate. Um, we, oh, and the Last Chance Mercantile is located off of uh, Del Monte uh, Boulevard in Marina, and I'm actually not sure of the exact address, but it's at the actual Monterey Regional Waste Management Department or district. It's actually on their property. So if you've ever taken anything that you were taken to the dump, we are right around the corner on that same property at, at the Last Chance Mercantile. Last Chance Mercantile has actually been around for over 20 years, and it used to be staffed by... Uh, the Monterey Regional Waste Management District employees, and um, when we when we actually got the contract to take over this this program, um, we we obtained that by explaining that we are going to help our residents, our veteran, our homeless veteran residents, you know, that are in our program, um, that that we are going to staff the Last Chance Mercantile retail positions with our veterans and our resident veterans. Um, 
so that that was something that is a mission that uh, the Monterey Regional Waste Management District is actually very on board with as well. They work, we work very well with them. Um, what else did you need addresses and information for? I think you I think you hit everything. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, but you didn't um you didn't tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to um to the uh, Veterans Transition Center and Veterans Healing Veterans program. Well, I actually I, I do not have any kind of a background uh with veterans uh, at all. In fact I I my 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 work history has really revolved all around um, job placement, job development, uh, staffing. Um, I've, I've worked as branch managers to, and sa selling branch managers for, uh, you know, staffing services. So I have had a lifetime of uh, helping people to get jobs. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit to come over and work at uh, the Maddox Group. And the Veterans Transition Center partners with, the Maddox group um, and, and does their staffing um, and then, you know, pays, does their payroll and things like that. And so when I started working at the Maddox group, I got to know all of the people at the Veterans Transition Center and uh, I was working so closely with them on some of these job development programs. And so uh, uh, a while back, the director of the Veterans Transition Center basically just kind of took me over to the other side of the building. So I still work for the Maddox Group, uh, but I also have uh, been kind of gotten a promotion uh, and have taken on a larger role with the Veterans Transition Center just by kind of uh, working in that direction. And it is the most rewarding position I have had in my entire life. And, and I've helped a lot of people by getting them jobs. This is something that is entirely different. It is it's life-altering for so many wonderful people who deserve this second chance. Wanda, well, this is Craig. I want to say that uh, uh, that uh, the VTC program, VHV, the Maddox Group, have been very helpful in us making transition back into society successfully uh, to the point that we we learn appreciation not for not only for for ourselves but appreciation for the work that they do on our behalf to help us to help ourselves. So I want to thank Wendy. I, I had to walk up to Wendy the first time I met her and thank her because she helped me get to drive ride uh, a car and driver to uh, uh, Stanford Hospital on numerous occasions. And I just felt the need to say thank you to her one day in the hallway. And I think she was blown away that somebody stopped long enough to say thank you to her. But, but Jenny and Alex and, and Holly and Alex uh, Allison is my uh, uh, driver ed education teacher, and she has uh, courage to go in the car with me after not having drive, driven in 50 years and keeps me out of the drive. So it's an all-encompassing program, <laughs> and, and it's very appreciative. Well, we we appreciate you, and and I thank you for saying that. It, it's it's um, like I said, it's it's so rewarding to be able to help to help you and to help others. It's really uh, it's it's something that is really kind of hard to describe. It's just um, it's an uplifting experience to watch all of you to transition back into, you know, functional society members. It's it's just it's a beautiful program, and we're happy to help. 
Yeah. So, Marcus, um, it's been a minute since you last spoke, <laughs> and and Al wasn't able to join us. And so, um, why don't why don't you share um, you know share some stories, um, and we'll go back around for everyone to be able to um, you know share uh, you know some stories um, uh, about you know this this place uh, Veterans Transition Center, which some of you all still live in and some of you don't. And uh, in Veterans Healing Veterans specifically because um, that seems like, you know, where you really grow community, you know, in this Veterans Healing Veterans program and the wonderful wraparound services that are part of the organization as a whole, you know, with caseworkers and just to make sure that you have everything you need to be successful. It's like a real model um, for reentry that should be duplicated everywhere because um, I know that everyone that needs to be there um, you probably don't have capacity for everyone. Um, so anyway, um, so back to you, Marcus. Why don't you share share some stories? I know you've got lots of them. Are you muted? Because we can't hear you. Uh, yeah. Well, I, what I would like to say is that the um, uh, Veterans Transition Center. Uh, what hasn't been mentioned is the the camaraderie here. Um, with the with the veterans uh, themselves, right? So, um, I would say that coming from the in the environment of, of where I was for twenty five some odd years, and then coming into society like that, it's like a um, you know, it's like a shock. Uh, but as soon as I got to the transition center. Um, there was a like a welcoming committee, right, of people uh, who were veterans and who um, kind of like was there to embrace me and and talk with me and to um, help me, you know, get acclimated to, um, you know, <laughs> to being to being out, right. And, but I would also like to say that the the Veterans Transition Center is not just for people who were formerly incarcerated. Uh, like Wendy was saying, it's for homeless veterans. It's a homeless veterans program. And so you have people who even have families, veterans with families who were, you know, were being housed uh, in the same program. And so what Jenny was talking about when she said LTOR, that's, um, that's just a segment of the Veterans Transition Center where they specifically cater to people who are returning from custody, right, from um uh, prison. It's a long-term offenders uh, program. I, I don't know what LTOR stands for, but 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 that's what she was talking about when she said LTOR. Um, but um, yeah. So so the thing is that when 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 I got out, I was able to to interact with with the people immediately, and then so then after I transitioned from the program, well. I go back. I, I'm still there, uh, driving people to and from um, uh, the places that they need to get to to to, to do their uh, in their uh, transition. And so then, what happens is, um, after I've transitioned, now I'm helping other people to transition. So I'm like, it's like I'm I'm um, helping myself all over again because I see those people that I'm helping as me, and when I needed help and other people who reached out to me. So, I mean, this is a very important part of this program. 
is that, you know, we're we're all uh, brothers and sisters in arms, and that um, that feeling of camaraderie is rejuvenated uh, um, from all of the years um, since when we since when I served, which was in the seventies. I served from seventy five to seventy eight, but still, uh, that that spirit is rekindled when you're at this when you're at this place. And so it takes it takes the for me it took the the um, the thing of incarceration out of it, and it started making me you know think beyond the prison walls. And uh, yeah, and so uh, of course, and then I have to uh, give the kudos to the um, to, to the staff there. You know, um, uh, Jenny was saying that she did her first letter or her first prompt, and uh, yeah. And while she while she did that is because she is part of the Veterans Healing Veterans Program. Um, she attends the group as well as all the other veterans. And so this is just to give you a, a like a uh, an idea of how intense this program is. Is that uh, not only are the veterans uh, getting you know uh, participating, but the staff are participating as well with the veterans. Um, and so um, I, I will say that if there's any story to be told is that um, uh, it leaves me with the feeling that um, there is, you know, there is hope and uh, also there's a, a avenue of prosperity here at the Veterans Transition Center. Uh, so uh, if, I, if I was to add anything to that, um, yeah, there are plenty of stories of of people's and successes. Um, and but uh, yeah, I think that uh, the 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 main thing is that people are coming to this center and they're getting the relief that they're seeking. So whatever it is that's happening with them to cause them to come here in the first place, uh, when they leave, they're ready to to, to tackle whatever it is that's uh, in front of them. And uh, mm. yeah, that's 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 yeah. what I have to contribute. Yeah, well, you're in, you're in a real wealthy uh, part of the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Monterey County. Um, you know that includes Carmel. Carmel is is you know kind of a up you know a high end place to live. And you think <laughs> about Monterey, you think about Monterey Bay Aquarium, you think about uh, University uh, UC Santa Cruz is not too far away. You think about that beautiful Highway One and the and the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it's just like, you know, there's a lot. Of, you think about the Monterey Jazz Festival. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening in that area where you are. It's, it's beautiful. It's peaceful. I think it's safe. Um, yeah, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous place to be able to live. And um, and and so anyway, um, no one's actually talked about, you know, sort of. Being in that environment, how I mean, you know, San Quentin is overlooking a really beautiful, the beautiful bay, but you know, you can't get because it's a prison. Um, and then it's also connected to the San Francisco area, which is not as tranquil as the place where you all are um, in Monterey County. So, so anyway, um, just wanted to bring that up. If anyone had anything to talk about, like, because I know, um, you know, Marcus. Um, you know, we know each other, and I know you would run along the ocean. I mean, that would be a part of your routine. You jog 
walk fast, ride your bike. And uh, and then you also talked about, you know, the generosity of some of these folks that have these mansions to the um, the Veterans Transition Center um, with donations and things like that. And you're being able to go into these homes and meet these people and, and also being a beneficiary yourself of some of this generosity in that you got a car. So anyway, I'm just like, you know, we don't have a lot of time, but... Um, yeah, uh, someone else want to say something? Marcus, you want to come back after everyone else has had an opportunity um, to have maybe some closing remarks? We have about 10 minutes. This is this is Craig. One of the things that mm-hmm. I learned is that, um, you know, when you come to prison, you come with a lot of labels and chains. But when I came to BTC, they, they gave me the honor that I once served my country with and helped me appreciate myself. And dignity was shown to me from day one. Um, it's all, also perplexing because they give you a smartphone and a laptop. And if you've never had one in 40-some years, it could be very daunting. But they have a class on Tuesday, a tech class, that teaches you how to use the laptop and the, and the, and the smartphone. But I'm finding that the smartphone's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is Randall Williams again. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want—I just want to extend a, a thank you to to Marcus for uh, uh, the, the generosity and the kindness that he extended to me. Um, as he said that uh, it, it was extended to him, and he passed it forward to me. Um, he helped me get my first apartment, mm. and. Quite a quite a few of the accessories that I have in my apartment, and but um, Marcus Blevins is a very one of the most decent human beings I've ever I've ever met, and um, I pray to my God that we will, um, you know, continue our friendship um, for as long as I'm on this earth. Um, but I also want to touch upon what uh, you said, Wanda. Uh, this program it should be duplicated because it um it has an extensive uh success rate and uh, with programs like this um the recidivism rate and um, it it would it would dwindle quite a bit this is a a marvelous spectacular program that I can never say enough about. Um, and I'm just going to end by saying, you know, like I said from the beginning, uh, I love that song. I, had, I mean, you know, you said, hold <laughs> on, coming, and, um, and, it, and it is, and it, it really is, and I love that. So, But um, I want to appreciate um, you, Wanda, for having us, me, on your program today, um, for me being able to get some of these things out of my, off of my chest and, um, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, you're quite welcome. Um, uh, Jenny, um, any any closing yeah. uh, remarks? Uh, I was just thinking about, you know, Ron uh, Self has been mentioned a lot. And um, yeah. personally, I don't I don't know him. <laughs> I mean, I know he's part of the program, but I don't know if he's a veteran. Like, I don't know where all this comes he from. He is. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. so um, Ron is a decorated Marine. Um mm. 
who served time, um, you know, in the military, in the Marine Corps, and um, can't remember exactly how many years. Maybe you guys could fill me in on that. <laughs> but he is uh, very passionate about what he does, and this program is absolutely amazing from, and mind you, I've only been in it a, about four months now, and I've seen such growth in the men that I go inside and do group with and when they come out and just being in group on Wednesday nights with all the guys and sitting there and watching them share their stories and be vulnerable and cry. It is just, it's beautiful. And Wendy and I had a conversation actually last night and we talked about how much we just truly love what we do. And it's not about money. It's not about any sort of, like that it's truly from the bottom of our hearts the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed we're working and making sure that we're fulfilling you know the needs of all the veterans and I'm just very grateful that I'm part of these men's lives so I thank Randall and Marcus and Craig because they're all such wonderful men and so thank you for having us all on the show together Oh, you're, you're quite welcome. I'm looking forward to um, the VTC uh, broadcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Wendy? <laughs> yes, I, I second everything that Jenny just said. Um, it is genuinely, like I said, it's the most rewarding. Most. I mean, I've, I've also raised two children. Uh, my son is a sophomore in college at Cal State Fullerton, and my daughter is a senior in high school in Aptos. And I've, they're both absolutely fabulous human beings, um, and which has been, you know, obviously the highlight of my life. But the VTC and working for this group of people um, is definitely a close second. It's um, it's just a phenomenal program, and and it is so rewarding. Like I said, you know, to be able to help these great people who really do deserve a second chance, um, regardless of whether or not they were um, incarcerated. If, if, you know, if they ended up homeless for, for any reason at all, that's, that in itself is, um, you know, that's, we, offer, we offer a life-changing solution. And it's just an incredibly rewarding um, life to, to be able to watch these people come out from whatever crisis situation they happen to be in and, and grow and, and develop their, their confidence and their skills and, and, like I said, reintegrate into society and the workforce and get back on their feet. And, the, you know, that's just a source of so much pride, and it's just beautiful to watch. And, and thank you, Wanda, for allowing us to have this, this chance to share um, the mission that uh, we are all on together. Right. Yeah. No. No worries. Um, so, why don't you, um, Wendy, give the the website one more time so people can go visit, um, you know, the Veterans Transition Center online and learn more about who you are because there are um, uh, bios of of the various persons who work there. You all have a, you know, seem like you run a really expansive and tight ship. And also the various programs are also listed there with more details, um, as well as information about the founder. Exactly. Yes. So the the um, the website again is www.vtc, as in Veterans Transition Center, Monterey 
vtcmonterey.org. So vtcmonterey.org. Um, and, and, yes, you're exactly right. The, the website shows all of, a lot of the services. So it doesn't go into as extensive of detail as we actually offer, but um, it will give you a general uh, understanding of the programs that we offer, that, you know, such as the housing solutions, case management, supportive services, job development, the food pantry, the last chance mercantile, um, and then, you know, it kind of gives you a, and then there's, there's little offshoots of each of those programs as well. Um, it's very, it, it can cater to the needs of any individual. So, yes, please visit. Come, give me a call. Come out and we'll uh, give you a tour. Oh, that sounds and excellent. Hey, Wanda, mm-hmm. can I also um, say yes. that the Veterans Transition Center has their website, but we, too, as Veterans Healing Veterans, we have our website, mm-hmm. too, which is just veteranshealingveterans.com, and that kind of gives you an insight to um, more trauma-based curriculum that we do. Mm-hmm. So awesome. is it that, awesome. too, yeah. as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I did actually uh, see that particular website. I'll need I need to link to that because I only link to the uh, the Veterans Transition Center on the website. Um, but I wanna I wanna thank um, thank all of you, um, you know, for for your service to the country. You know, Veterans Day is tomorrow, and um, mm-hmm. you know, as as a citizen, I really appreciate you know your willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice for the values of our democracy. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You all take good care. Let's let's have another conversation at some other point. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a Thank great you. day. Thank you. Me too. Thank you're you. Welcome. Bye. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. 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 <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. I'm Brother El Hajj, uh, Mori, uh, Salakam. Is that, did I see the other part, the last part correctly? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you were muted. <laughs> did I Did I yes. do justice to your yes. name? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Salakam. Salakam. Okay, excellent, yes. excellent. We're so happy that you were able to join us. Considering, um, you know, you've got this big uh, day planned um, on uh, November 13th uh, in D.C., you know, this rally um, um, program, you know, to sort of look at um, the, uh, you know, two of our, you know, uh, political prisoners, uh, Dr. Um, Afia Siddiqui and Imam Jalil Alameen, um, and so I was wondering if you could you could talk about you know tell us who she is. You are a uh, Washington D.C. Um, Metro Washington D.C. based writer, poet, and human rights advocate, and you are the director of operations for the uh, Afia Foundation, a Muslim-led human rights organization. And uh, our our good friend um, Brother Bilal uh, Sunni Ali. Uh, I uh, he he introduced me to uh, Dr. Afia Sadiq, because I hadn't known her story, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how did I miss like, you know, her, you know, her work and and what happened to her, um, you know, through, you know, in this country, um, you know, and her incarceration is just, you know, she and her family just sounds horrible. 
So, yeah, I'm really glad you're doing the work that you're doing, you know, at the foundation to to bring awareness to her case, uh, juxtaposed with that of um, uh, Imam Jalil Alameen, you know, who a lot of us know um, already. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say thank you for the invitation to uh, be on your platform and to share some thoughts uh, about our sister in Islam, Dr. Afia Siddiqui. And uh, many thanks to my dear brother, Bilal Sunni Ali, uh, for raising the issue of Afia with you, as, as I'm sure he is uh, doing so with others as well. Afia Siddiqui is a Pakistani national. She's a citizen of Pakistan who came to the United States uh, in 1990, as a, an 18-year-old uh, student, uh, she came here to further her, her education, and um, she did her freshman year at the University of Houston. She got a full scholarship after that freshman year to MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, she ended up graduating from MIT with honors and went from there to Brandeis University, uh, where she acquired a Ph.D. in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, the thing that really, uh, really exemplified the special qualities of Afia Siddiqui above and beyond her, uh, her academic prowess was her commitment to Islam. Uh, you see, Afia is also a hafida of Qur'an. She is someone who has memorized the entire Qur'an, and she was known for her dawah at all three universities. In fact, there's a video of her on YouTube. You can go to YouTube, put her name in, Afia Siddiqui, 1991, or Afia Siddiqui, University of Houston. Uh, and this video will pop up of her dressed in yellow. She was just at that time 19 years of age. She had been in the U.S. for a year. And she was about to, to leave for MIT. Um, when the president of the MSA, the Muslim Students Association, introduced her uh, to the audience, uh, he introduced her as someone who had already been designated the Dawa coordinator at MIT even before she got there. That's how far her reputation went. Uh, just an exceptional young woman she was. And... Uh, to make it short, um, as a result of her extracurricular activities that were all legal and were praiseworthy in most quarters, she ended up becoming a person of suspicion after 9-11, when active Muslims all over the country, myself included, were being investigated uh, simply because of the way that uh, suspicion um, uh, was being manipulated, was being greatly um, uh, exaggerated and manipulated in the wake of that tragedy. And uh, what ended up happening was when uh, Afia completed her studies in the U.S. in 2002 and went back home, um, within a few months of her returning home, she was targeted for a rendition operation uh, basically ordered by the U.S. 
and carried out both by U.S. and Pakistani operatives. She was disappeared along with her children, kidnapped off the streets of Karachi. She was in a taxi cab on her way to the airport to visit a maternal uncle in Islamabad and to also talk to government officials about an idea she had of, uh, of, of greatly enhancing the educational system in Pakistan. Um, and subhanAllah, she was, um, the taxi which she, she was in was stopped. She, was, she and her children were forcibly removed. And then from uh, that moment in March of 2003 until five years later, I mean, she just completely disappeared. Nobody knew where she was except for her captors. Uh, and um, it, uh, it just went downhill from there. In 2008, um, when four Arab Muslims escaped from Bagram in Afghanistan, and Bagram, like Guantanamo in Cuba, was, was controlled by the U.S. They had full control over Bagram. And um, when they escaped, they told stories about what had happened to them, how they had been kidnapped, tortured in secret, and they also told the stories of this one woman that was being held there. Uh, They didn't know her name, but they described her, uh, both by the number she wore whenever they saw her and also by what information um, was being uh, conveyed through the pipeline. She was a Pakistani national um, uh, she um, had spent years in the United States being educated. She had been kidnapped with her children, didn't know where they were. They would hear her screams and, and, and anguish uh, at, uh, at times uh, because of what was being done to her and also from the, uh, the, the heart uh, uh, break of, of not knowing where her children were. And um, as word began to spread about this mysterious woman, pressure began to be put on the Americans first to admit that they were holding a female prisoner at Bagram. Initially, they denied it. But then when it got to a point where they could not deny it any longer, they admitted, okay, yes, we're holding a female prisoner, but it's not obvious to Deke. And then shortly after they made that admission, they basically set her up to be killed. They took her from Bagram, uh, transported her to another part of Afghanistan, uh, reunited her with her son, who she hadn't seen in five years, uh, dropped them both off outside of uh, uh, the governor's compound, uh, gave her a bag with incriminating items in it, and then they made a phone call uh, to the Afghan authorities to report uh, a suspicious-looking non-Afghan woman hanging around outside the governor's compound. We believe she may be a suicide bomber. Uh, uh, not long after that, um, Afia was taken into custody by Afghan uh, authorities. Uh, thank goodness she wasn't shot and killed. Uh, and and um, uh, later, uh, when the Americans were uh, notified that the Afghan police had taken her into custody, uh, another la- layer of drama ensued. Authorities arrived uh American soldiers, FBI, probably CIA along with them. And uh, they got into an argument with the Afghan commander demanding Afia be turned over to them. Um, When Afia heard, you know, the voices of the Americans arguing with the uh, Afghan police commander uh, inside that uh, that office, uh, she 
feeling terrified of, you know, the prospects of being sent back to that secret prison, she got up and she looked through the curtain to see if there was a way of escape. And when she looked through the curtain, one of the soldiers, an American soldier on the other side, saw her. He panicked. He jumped up and shouted, the prisoner is free, took out his revolver and shot her. She was shot in the, in the torso two or three times. Um, uh, shortly after that, um, she was on the insistence of uh, the Afghans' uh, uh, helivac uh, to where she could get emergency treatment. But then after she was stabilized, the U.S., in violation of Afghan sovereignty and international law, brought her back to the United States, made up a story of why she was shot, uh, and then uh, a couple of years later put her on trial in New York City, just blocks away from ground zero, where she didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of getting a fair trial. And um, at the end of what masqueraded as a trial. Afia Siddiqui was given a sentence of 86 years for attempted murder where nobody was injured but her. 86 years. And now she sits on a military base, uh, Carswell, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, completely cut off from the outside world. Well, almost completely cut off. She's only allowed three visitors. Uh, Her lawyer... Uh, she hasn't had a lawyer for a number of years, but she has one now that can visit her. Um, the um, the council general at the Pakistan consulate in Houston, Texas, because she's a, a Pakistani citizen, and then uh, her brother. She only has one blood relative in the United States, her brother Muhammad. Uh, but whenever he visits her, she is made to pay a high price for that visit. And so um, he has stopped visiting her. Uh, And I I think this is probably more at Anthea's request than his because of, you know, what she has put through whenever he has been allowed to visit. So that, in a nutshell, is, uh, you know, the story of Anthea Siddiqui, the tragedy of Anthea Siddiqui, now 18 years in. She has been wrongfully imprisoned now for 18 years, the first five as a secret prisoner overseas, and the last uh, 13 here in the United States. Wow, wow. So tell tell our audience about, about Saturday, um, the 13th. Um, uh, is this the 13th? I think the 13th is a Saturday. Um, yes. Uh, what's, what's planned um, at the, uh, the Capitol? Well, we had... Uh, We were accustomed every year to having at least one rally, at least one rally for Althea Siddiqui. Uh, Sometimes it would be two or three in different cities. Uh, Because of the pandemic, for over a year and a half, we didn't have anything for Althea or any of of the other political prisoners we're concerned about. Um, And so we decided in large part because of the atmosphere that exists in America right now and in much of the global community as a result of both the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter resurgence uh, in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd, um, that this was an opportune moment uh, for us to 
both have a mobilization for Athia Siddiqui, uh, but also a, 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 uh, to be able above and beyond this, this series of mobilizations to also uh, do a lot more from our vantage point to shed more light on the disparities of justice in America on so many levels and also to share much needed attention on political prisoners and political imprisonment in America. And so we decided given the fact that Althea's case is one of the most important cases. In fact, I would say it is the most important case on our docket. Uh, and it has been the most important case for a number of years. And, and for the same reason as um, the sentiment that was shared by the late Ramsey Clark, you know, one of the most consequential U.S. attorney generals in um, uh, America's modern history, um, He said of Afia Siddiqui's case that it is the worst case of individual injustice he had ever seen, he had ever witnessed. And when when I heard him say these words, uh, they resonated with me because I had felt for the longest time that this was the worst case I had ever experienced. And so Afia's case is the most important case on our docket. Uh, Imam Jamil's case is a close second. We are also concerned about Mumia Abu-Jamal's case, which is another precedent-setting case. And then there are so many others, Muslims and non-Muslims, who we are concerned about. But, but getting back to Afia, um, we just saw this as an opportunity, this pandemic, this atmosphere that America and much of the global community is in, uh, to uh, do something that could resonate. And alhamdulillah, by the grace and mercy of Allah to Allah, it has resonated. Um, we so far have had four out of five mobilizations. The first uh, was in uh, uh, Houston, Texas, outside of the Pakistani consulate. And, and the purpose of that mobilization was to exert some pressure on the Pakistani government through its consulate to measure up on this case. Um, the second mobilization was in New York City. Uh, the third, and that too was, uh, excuse me, no, the second mobilization was in Fort Worth, outside of the, um, uh, the, the military base where Afi is being held. That has been <laughs> the most successful in terms of numbers. All of the mobilizations so far have been successful, by the grace of Allah, alhamdulillah. But the one outside of the base in, in Fort Worth has been the most successful in terms of numbers. There were hundreds of folk outside uh, for the demonstration, alhamdulillah. The third mobilization was in New York City, um, a half a block away from the Pakistani consulate in that city, again, to exert pressure on the Pakistani government through its consulate uh, concerning our sister Afia. And then the fourth mobilization uh, was in Boston, where Afia spent most of her years in the United States uh, being educated. Uh, and then, uh, so, so this next one on, on Saturday, three days from now, uh, will be uh, right across the street from the White House in Lafayette Park. And we're hoping that the numbers 
uh, in Washington for this national mobilization. We're calling this the national mobilization because this uh, is in the nation's capital and it's the last of the five. So we're hoping that folk will come from different parts of the country uh, to be a part of this uh, blessed effort uh, to uh, exert pressure around both the case of Afia Siddiqui and Imam Jamil Abdullah El-Amin, the former H. Rand Brown, whose case is also a litmus test for Muslims and for people who claim to believe in justice uh, and, you know, justice for all uh, in this uh, ongoing experiment in democracy called America. Mm, yes. How how did you um how did you come to know um her story? Um <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. How did I come yeah. to that? Mm-hmm. Well, your brother Salakan has been a human rights advocate now for about thirty years. Mm. Um and I've seen so much. I've I've been in courthouses all over America in cases involving Muslims, in cases involving non-Muslims. When I first started out with this work, it was around police brutality and police reform issues. And then um, after a, a, a huge case here in the Washington area, the case of a young African-American male by the name of Terrence Johnson, um, who was brutalized by police and subsequent to that became a political prisoner, um, when we uh, were drafted, <laughs> I was drafted to lead the charge on his, uh, you know, on his, on the campaign for his freedom after he was denied parole for the fourth time. After having been in prison since he was 15 years of age, 15 years of age, and he was denied parole for the fourth time, and um, his case came to my attention through a uh, uh, a petition drive that uh, uh, one of the African-American weekly newspapers ran uh, after the, the fourth denial. And um, me and some other brothers, we put our heads together. They asked me if I would, you know, lead the, the coalition uh, uh, for, uh, you know, that, that was put together to, to, to lead the campaign for his release in the, in the court of public opinion. And after three and a half years of intensive efforts, um, we were able to win Terrence Johnson's freedom. Um, after that, because that case was um, such a excellent. huge case. Oh, that's great. Yeah, after that, that case was, that was such a huge case that, that after that we got calls from all over for assistance. And we ended up forming a coalition another coalition uh, to deal with political imprisonment issues. And then it was from, from that that, um, uh, we, you know, we were doing some other work. And then I was at a masjid in Baltimore, uh, a large, in fact, the largest center in Baltimore, uh, the Islamic Society of Baltimore, which from time to time they would invite me to, do a, uh, to be a guest khatib for Juma. And I delivered a khutbah, uh, uh, and, and my khutbahs are always, you know, laced with justice, <laughs> uh, you know, oriented uh, uh, stuff, you know, thought, uh, food for thought. And um, 
after the chutzpah, one of the uh, sisters who came up to me asked me if I knew about Afia Siddiqui. Uh, this was in 2009, a year after she was brought back to the U.S. And I said I had heard something about her, but I really didn't have any, you know, a lot of detail about her. So she, she said, would you like to know more? I said, yes. So I ended up meeting back with this sister and her parents. And this sister was a medical doctor, and she ended up being someone who was married, I mean, uh, uh, related to Althea by marriage, her sister who's also a medical doctor, is married to Afia's brother. So she and her parents uh, brought me up to date uh, in, in more detail on who Afia Siddiqui was. After that meeting, we did our own investigation, which is our protocol. We want to be on the right side of justice. As Allah says in the Quran, stand firmly for justice as witnesses, even if it be against yourself. So we always do a careful investigation of the merits of a case, of an issue before we become involved. We did that with Afia, and as we became more aware of of uh, the details of her case, it, it became, it was the worst, one of the worst of the worst of the worst that we had ever seen. That was in 2009. Mm. And we've been involved ever and, since. Yeah, and, and did you... Um found the uh, Afia Foundation at that point? <laughs> well, actually, we had another organization that was known originally when we first started it. And, and this was actually a, a the outgrowth of the evolution coming out of the Terrence Johnson case. We, we went from this ad hoc committee for Terrence Johnson to the coalition, another, yes, yeah, to to establishing the coalition uh, against political imprisonment, and then from there to establishing the Peace and Justice Foundation, which later became known as the Peace Through Justice Foundation, to emphasize peace must come through justice. And then uh, when we decided that we we wanted to um, that we needed to register the government, uh, excuse me, the, the organization with the government in the hopes of allaying the fears and anxieties of a lot of our brothers and sisters because we were challenging the government in very forceful ways on another plane. Um, when we decided to register the organization as a 501c3, uh, our accountant advised us to change the name. So that's when we changed the name about what, six or seven years ago to the Apia Foundation, but with the same mandate as we've always had. So okay. it's not just about the case of Afia Siddiqui. We have the same mandate. We deal with um, human rights issues across the board uh, involving Muslims and non-Muslims, but we deal with these issues from an Islamic perspective, uh, but it just so happens that the most important case on our agenda is the case of Afia Siddiqui. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I was wondering when you were talking about about her being disappeared with her children, how are they? Um, I believe she has she has daughters. Is that correct? Well, well, she 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 actually had she has one daughter and and she had two sons. Oh, we believe. Two sons, yeah. When when the uh, rendition operation took place in, in March mm-hmm. of 2003, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Her children were ages six, Ahmed, four, Miriam, and six months, Suleiman. We believe that Suleiman... Wow, a baby. Was, oh, my goodness. Yeah, he was a baby. We believe Suleiman was killed accidentally in that operation. Um, her t- her two oldest children, are, you know, they're, they're in... in uh, Karachi, Pakistan, in, in the home city with uh, their their family, their their auntie and their grandmother and the household and their cousins, and um, they're doing well. They're doing very, very well, alhamdulillah. They're doing very well. They're both very good students like their mother was, and um, in addition to being a good student, uh, Ahmed has also followed in his mother's footsteps and has become a hafiz a, a, a of Quran. And um, so they're doing very well, alhamdulillah. All things considered, they're doing well, but they miss their mother. They were forced to grow up without their mother. Uh, there is a certain amount of trauma that is still there, and uh, but they're, you know, because of the love and the support that they've received from their family and from supporters beyond the family, they, they're doing well, alhamdulillah. Oh, that's excellent. So... Um... Hmm. What what would you like people to do <laughs> to um oh. to get the sister released? Um yeah, um and if you could definitely give give the website um so people could could find out more about uh about the um the protests on Saturday but also just the ongoing efforts to 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 uh, ascertain her release. And then um and have you have you had an opportunity to visit her? Well, I think you said you, you all aren't visiting. I mean, you're not on that list. It was her brother, and and I I know something about how um, how punitive and how humiliating um, it is for people. Um, you know, the the prison makes it humiliating so that a person, um, you know, to be able to have visitors, you know, in the strip searches both going and coming and other types of things. But I was wondering, have you had an opportunity like to write her, um, to be in touch with her? Yes. I've written Afia a number of times over the years. Mm-hmm. Never got a response. I don't uh, know if she has – in fact, well, there were some um, – I remember sending her a book or two and uh, mm-hmm. them being returned. Also, I remember getting mail returned at, at, at one point with, um, you know, the stamped, uh, the, um, the prisoner either refused the mail or, or, or something, else, some, something else that didn't make any sense. Um, the, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, the, the administration the, uh, of this prison um, has done their best for years now to keep any support from coming to Afia Siddiqui, even in the form of, you know, written communication. And so what has happened with me has happened with many others. It has happened with her family. It has happened mm. at times with her family. And I'll never forget uh, the year that we had a mobilization in Texas when we invited the former U.S. Attorney General, Ramsey Clark, to join us, and he did. In fact, just before he joined us, you know, we were 
um, alhamdulillah, we were able to help facilitate his being able to go to Pakistan to meet with the family of Afia and to, um, uh, to, to appear, to make a number of public appearances in Pakistan. Um, speaking with government officials, et cetera, the, you know, the media in large, and, 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 you know, his reception was much larger than mine, and mine was large when I went to Pakistan. Um, but when he returned and he joined us in, in Texas, he made an effort. Now, keep in mind, this is the former U.S. Attorney General of the United States. He made an effort to visit Afia and also another political prisoner who was being held there at the time, um, a, uh, a lawyer, a former lawyer by the name of uh, Lynn Stewart, the late Lynn Stewart. May, oh, yeah. May, 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 yeah. may Allah be pleased yeah. with her, you know, exceptional, extraordinary yeah. woman. Um, yes, he sure was. He was, he was able to visit Lynn Stewart, but he was denied a visit with Afia. And oh. the, the, the way they denied the visit, they lied to him. They told him Afia didn't want his visit didn't want to mm. see him. And when he, later, when um, at that time, Althea had some communication with her family. When her family asked her, why didn't you, why weren't you willing to visit with, um, uh, you know, the, to accept the visit of, of Ramsey Clark? She told her family that she was not aware that Ramsey Clark had attempted to visit her. She would have loved to have had him as a visitor. So they mm. just lied to him. And this is the former U.S. Attorney General of the United States. So, you know, this is, you know, this is the, 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 the situation that our, our sister is in. And, and if you don't mind, you know, given that this upcoming mobilization is going to be both for Afia and Imam Jamil, I would like to say mm-hmm. something about Imam Jamil's case as well. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're like out of time, so um, okay. we have to make it really brief, like two minutes. But I wanted to mention that tonight um, I got something from my dear brother, <laughs> brother, brother Bilal Sunni Ali, that there is something happening on YouTube tonight. Let's give it not tonight, tomorrow, uh, November 11th, 7 p.m., I think, Eastern Time. Um, uh, uh, CARE Michigan, C-A-I-R Michigan, is hosting um, – uh, an event in YouTube uh, about um, Minister uh, Minister Imam Jamil, Jamil Alamin and Kari Alamin Esquire, and the son of uh, Imam Jamil is going to be speaking along with Maha um, El uh, Kolali Esquire, counsel for Imam Jamil. It's also going to be um, in this this um, YouTube. Um, presentation so i definitely encourage people to to check this out again it's 7 p.m i think it's eastern time um given mm-hmm. that it's out of michigan <laughs> uh yeah. but it's care c-a-i-r which is an acronym michigan um, right. on facebook as well as youtube so yeah two minutes <laughs> okay two minutes i i just would simply say that imam jamil abdullah alameen is um one of the survivors of one of the most turbulent and significant decades in American history. He is a survivor. Owe him. Whether we realize it or not, we owe him and those uh, of the generation that he represents. Um, Imam Jamil has now been in prison wrongfully for 21 years. There is someone who has confessed repeatedly to being the person who got into the gunfight with the sheriff's deputies on that night uh, in March 
uh, of 2000 on the eve of Idol Adha. Um, you know, what mm-hmm. Imam Jamil was accused of was, is, is something that everyone has said. Even the late Coretta Scott King was, you know, just it flies in the face of the character of the person that they have known. And we have a person who repeatedly has confessed, and still Imam Jamil is where he is. Uh, he recently got uh, surgery, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. He got surgery for cataracts that had blinded him for three years. But that only came about after uh, a, a very intensive and well-organized mobilization uh, in, in Tucson uh, and, and some other activities that were uh, being brought to bear uh, to, to bring his case to light and to exert pressure around it. So, again, these kinds of issues in the court of public opinion can make a difference. Please join us three days from now in Washington, D.C., at the White House uh, at 1.30 in the afternoon to show your support, to demonstrate your concern for these two political prisoners and for the better of the two Americas. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And we'll definitely um, have you back on to talk about how it went and, and, you know, sort of going forward, you know, so what's the strategy, what's the plan, and just to keep, um, you know, our – our um, political prisoners and prisoners of war, you know, uh, in the minds and hearts of, of of those of us who are are free, you know, relatively speaking. Absolutely. That would be my pleasure. Thank you very much, Sister. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. You take good care. Okay. All right. alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam. Ah, good morning, William and Sam. How are both of you doing? Good morning. Doing very well. <laughs> Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. You are getting ready to open your new show, um, Father Daughter at the uh, Aurora Theater on the twelfth. And oh my gosh, I can just oh, it's going to be so cool seeing you all. In these roles, man, oh, my goodness, it's going to be so exciting. I, I just love the language. Oh, my goodness, the writing, it's so phenomenal. Um, yeah, yeah, how, how, does it, how does it feel wearing these characters? <laughs> uh, I mean, especially it really after. Ooh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, babe. You go, you go, you go. <laughs> I was just going to say how great it feels to be back in theater and just like mm-hmm. dust off the walls and, and get the lights <laughs> turned on. Just that is so novel at this point, two years later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. And the same though, I was going to say after, you know, all of this time away from the stage to be coming back to it and being pushed into, this is my first show after pandemic land and uh, being pushed into this, two-person, four-character show, and, like, it's heavy <laughs> and exciting, you know, to uh, jump back into the deep end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just, like, two of my favorite actors. Oh, my God. You know, William Thomas Austin, you know, as Baldwin and Lewis, and then Sam Jackson as Risa and Miranda, you know, like, and, and the way that, I mean, I don't know exactly how it looks on stage, but... And the reading, you know, like the way sometimes 
the characters are not talking to each other, but they're talking to each other because, mm-hmm. you know, we are our parents. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And and it's like, wow. And then, you know, just some of the, you know, like meeting someone, you know, in this dance where you're sort of externalizing what's inside of you through movement. I'm like, wow, that sounds kind of cool. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's just, and then having, you know, these, these it, it just seems like there's just so many levels, but it's just two people, you know, having a conversation, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, wow. And it's just so you, William, you do these roles so well, you know, as all by yourself, <laughs> and 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 you bring in the characters, <laughs> and then you know also in conversation and yeah yeah how do you do such and I'm just thinking I don't know um, M Graham Smith the director and you know I didn't know Kate Kerrigan you know the playwright but now I do and it's like I am like whew, I'm such a fan of Kate Kerrigan <laughs> yeah yeah. As you said, there's so much. Um, of course, the language is beautiful, and it's so conversational and falls so naturally. Um, mm-hmm. But also there's so much in these characters that speaks to us as humans. I feel like we spent half of our rehearsal process, like, going to therapy in the room, you know, <laughs> just being like, oh, well, let me tell you about my parents, and let me tell you about my, you know, uh, which I think is the is sign of a beautiful piece, that it really evokes emotion uh, on on such a base level. In connection mm-hmm. on such a base level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something yeah. so interesting about Kate's writing, these, these like tearing apart these two characters, but the back and forth of it just adds another layer where sometimes you're, you're like, which character saying that? And there's mm-hmm. kind of a, a Ubuntu quality about all of it. We, we are everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I was just going to say, I just did a one man show and exploring all those characters is um, kind of exemplifies that experience to me, everyone fitting in one person, but doing it mm-hmm. with another person is so much more fulfilling. Uh, like there's so much I can learn from Sam being on stage with her in those moments that you just can't do in a one-man show. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me let me let me read your bios, and then we will maybe uh, let our audience know. Like, okay, what's this about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what's in my bio, Lord, help me. <laughs> so we'll start with you, Sam. Uh, Sam Jackson is a San Francisco-based actor. The last time she was on the show, we were talking about uh, Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye. Uh, it was like a radio drama that Aurora mm-hmm. kicked it off with, and it was like so phenomenal. And Sam, you are like... Ah, wonderful actress, uh, actor, um, and you're also a vocalist and a teaching artist. Uh, your most recent acting credits include uh, Shogun Players' uh, Vinegar Tom as Ellen, Aurora's Exit Strategy Sadie, Shogun Players' Kings, uh, Sydney Mills app, Mills app, and Kill the Debbie Downers, Kill Them, Kill Them, Kill Them, Off. Yeah. <laughs> Olga. <laughs> What a title. Um, <laughs> she is also a company member of Nice Tan Comedy, a queer, women of color-led sketch comedy group based in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, like, seeing you. Uh, I, I like laughing. So 
you know, make sure you let me know when you when you have something up. Um, yes, ma'am. Uh, oh, cool, cool. And um, you uh, you give us a uh, your Instagram um, tag. So why don't you give it to our audience? Oh yeah, uh, my Instagram is little l i t t l e underscore miss m i s s underscore s j. So come over and hang out with me. Follow and see the weird stuff I do on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. And then William, wow, you know, what can we say about William? He is like phenomenal. Uh, yeah, and, and you don't put in here that you are co-artistic director of um, Oakland Theater Project. used to be Ubuntu uh, Theater project. Um, but you're an acting company member at the Oregon Shakespeare Company where you played a whole lot of folks. Um, Demetrius <laughs> in a midsummer yep. night stream, Malcolm, uh, Macbeth, Stokes, How to Catch Creation, uh, Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, uh Dumont or Dumain, uh in Love's Labor Lost. And locally your work has been seen at a number of theaters. So what was the show that just closed at um um, Oakland Theater Project. Yeah, so uh, we actually had to postpone a couple shows in our season. We, we did four shows, and we had a few more planned, but with mm-hmm. the Delta variant coming through, we had to close down my, my other one-man show that actually wasn't a one-man show, involved other actors, and we just wanted to keep everyone safe. Mm-hmm. So we put up a brief second thing um, over the past mm-hmm. month, uh, and we just closed that, and that was a really beautiful experience with 40 audience members every night. Um, nice. It's been beautiful to kind of open all of these shows with different theaters and just get to see people coming back. <laughs> I, I kind of mm-hmm. think I could be really bad and people would just appreciate it so much. So it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stop it. Yeah. It was a gorgeous show. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And you've got a... Um, uh, the Broadway World Award for Best Actor and a Bay Area Theater Critics Award, Critics Circle Award for Best Actor and Outstanding Director um, Direction. What what plays were these? Um, well, the Outstanding Direction was for uh, Ragtime at Berkeley Playhouse a couple of years ago, um, mm. and that was another big rewarding experience. I, I kind of look back at those big thirty-person shows and I just gag. Seems so far away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, nice, nice. And you have an MFA in acting from UC San Diego, and you've trained at um, SFUAD. What's that stand for? And PCPA. <laughs> That's my now defunct college. Santa Fe University of Art and Design is actually no longer a oh, school. Oh, um, no, seriously? Yeah, that's uh, sad to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is sad. No, just like, I don't know, Mills College in Oakland, um, hopefully it will be, it's not gone. Um, I hear some people are trying to keep it, keep it as a, as a, as a uh, institution um, of higher learning. Hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a reinvestigational system. I, I had so many beautiful experiences that kind of thrust me into the opportunities I've had and, yeah, it scares me that mm-hmm. the next generation of young artists won't have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you know, that kind of nostalgia is also present in father-daughter 
um, you know, like, you know, the the two generations, like, okay, he was 30, you know, know, uh, like the same age I am, you know, when, you know, this happened and and just trying to say, like, okay, yeah, but they were much more mature, like, really? Like 30 is 30. Uh, (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, um, yeah, talk about, maybe you all can go back and forth and, like, what's this play about? Father, daughter. I just like the title, Father, daughter. You know, we don't hardly ever get a chance to sort of, like, reflect on what does it mean to be a daughter. A lot of times it's like the son gets all the the play. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's talk Mm -hmm. about daughters and their fathers and how central this relationship is. So what's the play about? Ooh, um, I mean, this is how I tell it. Maybe William, we could maybe we could exchange <laughs> how we tell it to people. Yeah, uh, I say that it is a play about two couples, um, one in present day and one twenty three years from now, and uh, them navigating new relationships. Uh, that's how we start, and then moving through to uh, really falling into their relationship and their patterns and their love and what that looks like. Um, And on that road, uh, you find out that one of these couples is the father to the daughter, (laughs) which is a crazy way. But uh, so 23 (laughs) years ago, you see the father going through a relationship and present day you see the daughter going through a relationship and you get to see the ways in which – the father-daughter relationship affects the romantic relationships and how we are in so many ways our parents, whether we want to be or not. Mm. That's how I talk about it. <laughs> yeah. I, love it. I, I was also going to say there's something Kate says uh, about the play that I really love, that, that it's about how building a new relationship can change your existing relationships and really specifically yeah. how, how love with a new person can change this woman's relationship with her father. Um, and it's mm-hmm. it's I love the the way she's written this, the way we switch characters back and forth and become father daughter in those two different couplings uh, um, generationally. It, it, you just see into so much, and and it has it has us questioning our own parents, our own rituals that we've come up with. So in in a mm-hmm. way, it's it's about something really specific, and in another way, it holds so much. Like we're two black actors that could step into this white woman's play and feel mm-hmm. like we could reasonably make it our own you know, our own experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, to have a name like Baldwin, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, like as a person of African descent, you know where I go. <laughs> Straight to Jimmy, I don't know if there was ever any other Baldwins in the world, but they don't exist for me. <laughs> it's right. <just> look. <laughs> And then Miranda, wow, Miranda's like kind of a magical name. You know, there's so many wonderful characters named Miranda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she's it's like a so many times. Mm-hmm. Our director brought in that it's a Shakespeare made name. I, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, Sam. It was like a made up word for miracle or something in a Shakespeare book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, that, is a, that is the myth. That is the, the legend, mm-hmm. rather. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come on, drop yeah, turkey. 
Yeah, come on, dramaturgy. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you all like? You know, like how how do you switch? You know, um, to these different different parts. Uh, you know, it's almost like you're exploring. You know, different aspects of your psyche. <laughs> But yeah, exactly how do you how do you is. how do you how do you keep these 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 characters straight? Um, and uh, I just love the language. Like, oh, wow! Did 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 that character just say that? Like for real? Like really? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these places, like you know, like the the setting, they're so such you know, like you you don't think about um, these these kind of places and some of the places. You know, I've never been, and then the language of the younger couple. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, what does this mean? And yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's just really, it's really, um, I don't know, it's really beautiful. Particularly, you know, like the juxtaposition uh, of Lewis and Miranda, and and what does it mean to be a family? That question: Can I be a family if I only know? Mm-hmm. A couple, you know, like I don't know family. <laughs> mm-hmm. All I mm-hmm. know is like, I mean, I know my version of it, and is it mm-hmm. healthy or was it dysfunctional? Like, do I want to like cast this on to another generation? Like, or do I just want to yeah. like let it die with me? And it, and it comes yeah. up in 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 both generations, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I love. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, I keep interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say there is kind of um, a theme that there's in, inherited culture from father mm-hmm. to daughter in here, and, mm-hmm. and in some ways it's framed as a curse, and of course it can be framed otherwise, like there there's culture we pass down in a beautiful way. Um, and I think that the play for me kind of explores how that culture can be changed in, in and for me, it is kind of generational growing up in the 90s where that was less true. And then seeing my younger brothers who are Generation Z, who are really looking to like break away and start new cultures politically, socially, in their relationships. Um, it's kind of inspiring in that way to see these people learn how to bring that in their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that uh, kind of flows into what I was going to talk about, just this culture of Wanda, you asked, how do we shift in these characters? And you mentioned it being just different parts of our psyche, which I think is very true for us. And there's a lot of, like, you know, some of my auntie comes out in Risa or, you know, the original Aunt Viv from Fresh Prince, right? Because Risa is a black woman in the 90s, which is very different from me, a black woman in 2021, you know? Um and in that same vein, the culture of the relationship is very different. And as you were talking about Miranda and Lewis and the question about family and Lewis's patience with Miranda as she tries to unpack what her, you know, version of family is and whether it's healthy or not, um, there's such a sweetness about their relationship and around uh, Lewis's not only patience with Miranda, but his willingness to shift his communication style to her to really make sure she feels protected and heard. Um, And though Miranda and Baldwin, the father and the daughter, are very closed off, Risa doesn't have that same skill set as Lewis does to really bring Baldwin out. She's a little more 
little tougher with it. You know, she's a little uh, no holds barred with it. So uh, even just the culture between the relationships, whether the father or daughter or not, um, is really stark in these in these different times. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And then and then you think about, you know, what happens in divorce uh to the children. I don't know. I mean, this is really uh an interesting way to sort of play out, you know, uh, a scenario of what happens to the the child who is, you know, a weekend parcel, you know, sent back and forth and mm-hmm. And then what happens if that's interrupted and what do what do the children remember and what do they forget that the parents remember or have all this angst mm-hmm. around that the child doesn't even remember. Mhm. Yeah, you know, like what happens, you know, in you know, with regards to I don't know like what I can say <laughs> around um, you know, what happens with um, you know, the uh the mom and um and and you know and and the father I'm talking about Miranda's mm-hmm. parents. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. in that relationship you know the mother as a social worker the dad <laughs> as a science mm-hmm. teacher and then they've got this kid you know <laughs> mhm mhm and how the father sees himself yeah and and whose narrative the the kid kind of absorbs too. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's no innocent character in the play, which is great. Uh, mm-hmm. In in any, I mean, <laughs> but you do kind of get to see things from two perspectives, and um, things just weigh on different people differently. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, and then the end. I'm I'm not sure. Like, are they really talking, or is this, is this <laughs> theater? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna leave that up to you. Come see it and find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's really cool is is the way that the Aurora Theater is so accommodating. Um, there is the in person theater experience, like you're in the Aurora Theater. You know. Um, on the 12th, you know, which is uh, this Friday, it starts, um, you know, that in-person experience. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then um, in December, there's going to be uh, a streaming, um, which is kind of cool. Um, what is it, December 7th through something? Uh, the 12th? Yeah, I mm-hmm. believe that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So um so that's good um for those mm-hmm. that um can't get out. Um you don't have to miss it. You know, this, mm-hmm. which is great because you don't want to miss it. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, uh to see the two of you uh, making this come alive is going to be simply phenomenal and um and folks can uh get single tickets um or you can subscribe to the whole season. Uh single tickets are 20 to $78. And you can call 510-843-4822. Or you can visit Aurora Theater with re.org to find out more about the play and the cast and the playwright and look at some beautiful pictures. 
<laughs> it is yeah. going to be a beautiful show. The design is also really gorgeous. I'm excited for this as an event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So um, I don't know what you can tell us more because, um, you know, it's one of those kind of plays. Well, you know, you got to, like, see it, hear it. You can't, like, because, you know, we don't want to spoil any of these movements. But it does have movements um, from the from, from one section to another, from one, you know, um, couple to another couple. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you all have music? How how do you how do you move, you know, with the fluidity uh, between one one conversation into another conversation? How do you keep it moving from one to another? Do you have lighting shifts? How do you do it? <clears throat> Yeah, we've got uh, Cliff Carruthers as our sound designer, and he's kind of done a lot of original beats and, and sounds for us. Uh, there's specifically mm-hmm. a theme of exploring through dance, well, repression, and trying to break down that repression through dance. Um, you'll know what I'm talking about if you come see it. But, yeah, <laughs> this sequence that's uh, live, uh, drum-based dance class for us in the middle, in the middle of the show. Um mm. Nice. David Elliott is this brilliant lighting designer who's also helping us make the world and yeah, it's 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 been so such a beautiful experience to step back in that church that's been kind of dusty for two years and then see them right. just make make magic out of it. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um any special special preparation that you all are are um have have gone through to be able to um you know, step into these roles and go back and forth like you're going? Um, um, like, what are you pulling on from your vast repertoire of, of um, you know, backstage personas? Like, okay, I'm calling this one into the room. <laughs> I'm telling that one, stay out the room. <laughs> stay out the room. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. And some of you might have to chain down. Like, who knows what, what might be coming up for you? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that that's a truth. You you were saying Sam earlier about like these are my aunties, these are my my people in my life. Uh huh. And then there's also the other side of where I have to like keep it separated. So at some point, because you do see your own life in this play, and and just to make it healthy and repeatable every night, there's a little yeah. bit of that. Mm-hmm. A little bit of like, okay, personalized, like, get out the room, which is exactly like, yeah, it's like some of it's my, like, aunties, and then I have to go, you know what, let me just take the TV auntie, original Aunt Viv, let's just put her into my body instead of, like, bringing out my own personal stuff, you know. And especially at the pace we're moving, we've done a, a lot of work with Natalie Green to have, like, physical calls in our body. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in two transform into the the next scene and emotionally be at a different height and uh, moving at like the forefront of your psyche. I do mm-hmm. feel like I, I have a couple added practices just to make sure that I can stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And, and who, who, um, you know, who's your audience? Who are you speaking to? Who would you like to see in the room? Mm. Of course, everyone, but who particularly, like, who might not think that this is for them, like, you need to be in the room? I mean, I... I, I oh, go, please go ahead. 
ahead. Please go ahead. <laughs> well, this is That's so that great the way you all are so in right, the That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we do this way too much. Um, no, I think, and this is something that, you know, I think every time I've been, I've spoken with you, Wanda, I've said the same thing. I would love to see black bodies in the space. Um, mm-hmm. This show, happenstantially, became a black show. It was not written to be a black show. Um, and I mm-hmm. don't think that there was a lot of thought um, that went into the fact that, oh, surprise, we have a black show. Um, and, one of the many very beautiful things about being in the room with William is that we are both advocates for our blackness <laughs> and uh, making room for it in the piece. So I would love to see um, some like-minded and like-bodied humans uh, to to bounce off of, to understand the nuances um, and the, the code switching and the reason that, you know, Baldwin being a black man in the 90s who, you know, doesn't live with his daughter is a different story than him being a white man in the 90s that doesn't live with his daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's my little two cents. (laughs) Mm, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like kind of theater as an art form, I, I don't think this is fair or right, but is dominated by white audiences and that's that cannot inherently be theater. There has to be commune. There has to be a difference, a, a divide of some sort in the theater for us to be really appreciating it. You have to have a different perspective about that thing that you laughed at. And it makes me wonder about the human experience. If there's no diversity in that sense, I feel like we're failing as, as an art form. So saying that, mm-hmm. I really do hope that um, this being their first show back, that there are audiences that feel really uh, welcomed by the space and even give feedback, you know, feel so welcomed mm-hmm. that they do this show next time, or I don't like the way you did this. That mm-hmm. That's the agency that um, theater goers, current theater goers that have been for years have. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and there will be, and, yeah. And there will be an opportunity for audiences to, um, to actually, um, you know, be in conversation, you know, with you all. Um, there were some dates that um, I'm looking for. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you know which ones they are off the top of your head, um, where there's going to be um, talkbacks. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately. I am not seeing it, but, but there were three dates, and I saw them on the website. <laughs> and uh, and so anyway, um yeah, but the previews are Friday, Saturday, the um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, which um, uh, which is um, this Friday the twelfth through um, uh, next Tuesday the sixteenth, um, and and then the opening is Thursday, uh, November eighteenth. Um, previews are a little less expensive than the opening, I hear, because of the opening, you know, they feed you. So, um, you know, <laughs> pay for the food. <laughs> hey. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but, you know, staying staying afterwards when there is um, an opportunity to have conversation with the cast and the director, and it's, it's always just really wonderful. I, I love those those opportunities. and And, again, I'm really happy that, 
the Aurora is accommodating those of us who cannot get in uh, for the in-person because I can't do in-person anymore for the uh, foreseeable mm-hmm. future. So I'm really happy that there is a streaming. So, you know, we can kind of, kind of, kind of pretend like we're there. Um, and if yes. you've ever been to Aurora Theater, you, you know what the space looks and feels like. So I can have, you know, I can I can go there in my mind, <laughs> if not in my person. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm glad they're continuing the digital offerings. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I I hope, um, you know, more theaters, um, because SF um, Playhouse is, and um, Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, uh, ACT, some of their performances have, like particularly for the school, um, have continued that. But not every, not every, uh, company is doing that. I know it's in an added cost, you know, for for this particular mm-hmm. um, offering. And I don't know how, you know, what it costs, but a cost is a cost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, folks can do their year end, you know, uh, contributions and say, hey, I want this for, <laughs> you know, to extend the ADA aspect. <laughs> of yes. Truly, really yeah. worth it for that. Well, cool. Um, any anything else you want to share? Um, you know, since we we're being so minimalist about everything, <laughs> I'll let you share whatever you think you can share. <laughs> like a hard moment, a great line. Um, you know, you know, whatever, whatever you want to close with. <laughs> I I don't know if I want to share more about the show personally, but I would just. Okay like to say that it has been such a pleasure to come back on stage and get to work with such talented humans. And I truly can't imagine a better way to start this career again, I guess, in a, in a strange way. Um, mm-hmm. But working with William so closely has been such a pleasure and an honor. So I think y'all should just come see it because we're amazing. I mean, because he's amazing, but... Because no, because you're amazing. amazing. <laughs> you said it right. We're amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> no, it's been such a pleasure. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of good energy in this show. So come come soak some up. Yeah. 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 I want to invite everyone to, like, have a beer and come to the theater and meet your neighbor before the show starts. And mm. you come think about your own growth as a human and your parents and bask in the wondrous energy of this woman and just cry a little bit. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, super. Well, congratulations, um, you know, on on this, you know, in-person main stage production. Oh, my gosh. I, bet you, I just can't imagine how exciting or excited you feel. Like, oh, my God, like we're... Like actually here, we're not virtual. Like what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How does this? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. To actually be able to like, yeah, I just can't imagine it because I'm not there. Um, <laughs> but but I I can imagine how wonderful because I love theater and I love your mm-hmm. work, both of you, and I love the Aurora and ah oh, yeah, and I love the way the play sits on the page and oh just mm-hmm. just wondering like. You know, just you all embodying these characters and this story and making it your own, you know, like, whoa, you know, bringing it home to the black community, like, yeah. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a father and a daughter, you know, a daughter and her her lover, and it's just, oh, nice. And then the women who love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the work and not talk about the work. Yeah, I know people <laughs> are so baffled, like, go get a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You all take good care. <laughs> you as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Wanda. Right. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. Peace <laughs> and blessings. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, go to auroratheater.org and get your ticket for Father Daughter, you know, starring Sam Jackson and William Thomas Hodgson. It's really, really wonderful work. Um, yeah, the world premiere. So um, we're going to close with um, another another iteration of Hold On uh, <laughs> from Sounds of Blackness. It's the slower version, um, which is it's different. Hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Ticks. Peace and blessings. If we pray on
be 